Welcome to Maker Mixtapes. My name is Tom Watley, and today we're talking about making B2B marketing better. Jason Bradwell is a Senior Marketing and Communications Director at Delta Train, a technology partner for sports and entertainment brands that take care of pretty much anything technology related you could think of, which you'll learn all about shortly. Jason and I talk about how his background in theatre and sales contributed to his success as a marketing leader, as well as the work he does leading a marketing team at Delta Train. We also talk about the importance of B2B branding and why B2B brands should be experimenting with channels like Twitch and how Jason and his team are approaching those channels. This is a great episode for anyone who's looking to break the boundaries of B2B marketing, so do enjoy. Jason, thank you ever so much for joining me today. Yeah, pleasure, Tom. Thanks very much for having me. It's been a long time coming. It certainly has. It certainly has. And I thought a good place to start, I was having a little peek through your your LinkedIn profile earlier because I know all about your your B2B better and the newsletter and the stuff that you do at Del Tartre, but I was like, what has this guy been up to in the past? And I noticed that you were entrenched in the world of sales one way or another before becoming a marketer. And I was just wondering how that contributed to you becoming the marketer that you are today. Yeah, it's a great question. And I do have a somewhat, I guess, unconventional background when it comes to how I got into marketing. If I could take a step back further than one step further than even the, the sales job, you know, I studied theater. I studied acting, right? And, and I had every ambition of completing my degree and going on and working on the stage for the rest of my life. And very quickly realized after university that that wasn't going to put food on the table and I needed to find, I needed to find a job. <laughs> so I did the typical post-uni working in hotels and bars and that kind of thing and ended up when we moved to London with my, with my now wife, landing in a, a sales job for a consultancy who served the online video industry. So, you know, customers like Netflix and BBC iPlayer and UK TV Player and, and, and things like that. And we had a research tool that basically allowed those kind of companies to do a bunch of competitive analysis, which is what they would do anyway when building these kind of streaming services. Um, and my job was just to pick up the phone and try and pitch it to these kind of companies. Now, that company also had a trade magazine, which was kind of how it become known in the industry. And because we were a very small operation, ultimately, it ended up just being the two of us, the CEO and me. My job as a salesperson very quickly evolved to include pretty much everything in terms of the running of that organization, including writing and editing material for the trade mag. So I ended up kind of pivoting from being purely sales to actually entering more of a kind of journalistic consultancy role, building up my copywriting experience, which in turn kind of set the foundation for me to go on to become what I am now, which is the uh, Senior Director of Marketing and Communications for Delta Trade. So yeah, a bit of a unconventional route to, to getting where I am today, but it's been a lot of fun. And I think a lot of the skills that I picked up both from my acting career and from my early sales days have kind of carried through to, you know, to the place where I am now, you know, like I think back to when I used to act improvisation, you know, like being able just to kind of adapt and adjust on the fly to the situation that you find yourself in. Yeah. I was going to ask if that 
time of your life has helped with the podcast that you run actually yeah absolutely right i mean you know it as much as anyone right when you're interviewing people you can send through a list of questions or topics or themes that you want to discuss at the beginning but the conversation is going to go where the conversation is going to go and when you're acting as the, in the role of a podcast host you need to be able to adjust to your guest so yeah improvisation is, is a big part of that you know there was a lesson i remember being taught in my impro days there was a game we used to play called uh I think it was called the, the yes game. And essentially you'd have people come onto the stage and just start improvising and you couldn't say no, right. To the situation. It doesn't matter how wacky it was. If you were just pretending to be at a bus stop and someone said, and here is my pet salmon. You just had to kind of go with it. And that kind of thinking I think serves marketers really well, right? Accept every idea, you know, explore every creative Avenue. Don't let your own, expectations of a situation hold you back from exploring it so yeah definitely things you can carry through yeah how has that like yes attitude helped with leading a marketing team today then because the thing is we have like so many ideas as marketers lots of things to test and well say yes to because there's so much opportunity out there how do you go about like knowing what to say yes to or do you you know, not tend to bring that attitude into the uh, the senior marketing world place. I like to think, and I'll share this episode with my team, and I'll see if they actually agree with me. That <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm pretty uh, I'm pretty open to all ideas because you know the companies that I've worked with and for and led teams within have typically been on the smaller side. You know. 10 people max and, you know, budgets that reflect that kind of size of team, you know, very different to a company like Salesforce who have 25,000 marketers in their ranks and a budget of 8 billion or something. And when you're in that kind of environment, you know, it doesn't matter how big the company is. If your team is small and intimate and working kind of in the trenches with each other every day, I think taking that attitude of, if you've got a great idea, let's just, you know, identify an hypothesis on what that idea is going to deliver and let's just try it out. You need to kind of adopt that kind of startup mentality, obviously in line with your wider kind of marketing and company objectives. But when you're in a team of that size and it's just go, 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 you know, you haven't got too much time to kind of think through every possible outcome of an activity. It's better to say like, okay, what is it you want to achieve here? What do we expect we're going to be able to achieve what is the experiment or the test that's going to allow us to validate to some degree that hypothesis so that we can make a more informed judgment as to whether we want to dive in feet first with it. So yeah, I guess that's my approach to that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I want to dive into some of the things that you said there in a moment when we talk about the work that you do at Delta Trade. But first and foremost, I'm a, a huge fan of your newsletter, the B2B Byte, and more specifically, what you've been talking about recently, your philosophy on the importance of branding in the B2B world. Why do you think it's taken B2B organizations so long to catch up in this area when it comes to you know investing in a brand? I think there's a couple of things. I think one, the kind of conventional methods of reaching B2B buyers via marketing are drastically changing. And that change has been accelerated through COVID. I have always worked for companies where kind of the event schedule is the success or fail metric of how marketing is going to do that year. 
you know, can we get to the headline, um, the headline trade shows, the headline conferences and get our sales team in front of their prospects who are attending that event year in, year out. COVID obviously has put a hard break on that kind of approach, right? And virtual events, like I give them credit. I give credit to the event organizers who have had to adapt and pivot so quickly, but they just do not, in my opinion, yield as good a result as just an in-person show. Like the biggest success that, you know, that sometimes I say we see at these events is running into the CEO of one of our prospective clients over a stale mini muffin and a crappy coffee just in between the conferences. And, you know, we only need that to happen once and we've validated our budget. So with COVID having changed the means in which we are um, reaching B2B buyers through digital platforms, suddenly the emphasis on brand has become a lot more important because now the playing field has been leveled, right? you know, to a degree, it's not about how big a trade booth can you afford to buy or can you afford to get your CEO speaking on a keynote slot, right? On the main agenda of a show. Any B2B company can go out there and start creating great content and publishing it across their social media channels and perhaps putting a little bit of paid behind it as well, building up an email list, thinking of themselves as a media company. Anyone can do that. The the, the barrier to entry is lower. So, that is where investment in brand suddenly becomes very important because if you're just pumping out crappy content that would look as at home on your competitor's website as it does on yours, you're just, you're not going to stand out from the crowd. And then the other thing is just understanding of B2B buyers because they're changing. You know, millennials have a greater influence over the B2B buying decision-making within their organizations than ever before. I think the stat is 74% of millennials who work in B2B companies have an influence over their, over the buying decisions of their company. They over-index on web and social media. Over 70% of 21 to 30-year-olds uh, use social media for in a business context every day versus only 45%, I think, between 41 and 50-year-olds. So you know, you've got this kind of new wave of B2B buyers who are coming through the ranks now and increasingly have influence over the decisions their companies are making. And they just, they engage with companies in different ways. They have been influenced by the, the ease of accessibility of B2C products. You know, they're, they're used to seeing how much an Uber is going to cost on their app. So they expect the same from MailChimp or Shopify or these kind of B2B companies that clearly are being influenced by these B2C organizations. So yeah, I think it's just like a, an evolution of the B2B buyer as well. Totally, totally. The the people who are using social media are actually the ones who are going to be writing the checks. And it was only going to be a matter of time anyway, but it sounds like that time has come. I mean, people like you and I are now in senior marketing positions, shall we say, and we definitely fit in the, the millennial bracket. So it's the reality. Do you think there are still some organizations who are not facing that reality. And on the flip side, are there any B2B brands who you think are absolutely nailing it when it comes to brand, whether that's on social media or otherwise at the moment? Do I think some B2B companies are still falling into the trap? Yeah, I do. You know, I think especially some well-established B2B organizations who have been around for a very long time and have done phenomenally well on the strength of their sales relationships. They are perhaps a little bit more slow moving when it comes to adopting a digital marketing approach. I think 
you know, those kind of companies are different to um, companies that have been born in a digital age. You know, a lot of SaaS organizations and technology organizations are digital first and as such are quicker to adopt, you know, premium content marketing and digital marketing over their other contemporaries in the B2B space. One company I think is doing a phenomenal job is a company called MongoDB. And what they do, I'm still trying to figure it out because because <laughs> it, 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 when you read their website, it, it's, it's, it's quite little, technical, isn't it's it? It's quite technical, yeah. Like an open database for capturing JSON files or something like that. I don't know what they do necessarily, but I think their marketing is phenomenal because they are clearly a brand you know, they are clearly a brand, you know, and they are investing in these kind of memory based activities that cement them as an organization in the minds of their potential customers. They ran a great campaign at the tail end of last year where they created a kind of interactive thriller in the form of like what you may have seen on Netflix where you can kind of choose throughout the movie. Like uh, the Black Mirror special. Like the Black Mirror special, yeah. I think Bear, Bear Grylls has got one now. Like, should I jump under the car or jump up the tree when a lion's trying to attack me? So they did the exact same thing. They created this 20-minute interactive thriller that was an editorial piece. You know, it was it was a mini movie, but it was you know, designed to kind of talk to some of the themes that its flagship product, MongoDB Atlas, provides. And it was targeted at an audience that doesn't like advertising, developers. But, you know, I don't know the results of it because I think the campaign's still ongoing. But to me, it, it's something that I'm not going to forget. And if I'm ever in a position where I'm in the market for whatever MongoDB is selling, I will just think of them straight away and be more inclined to you know, explore their proposition versus their contemporaries who may offer the same thing and, you know, may just be trying to compete on price or feature set, but don't in, aren't investing in developing that kind of emotional connection with me as a buyer. Yeah, I would not have expected an open JSON database solution to invest in an interactive thriller. Like, was it quite story driven? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. 100% story driven. It was the story of two two founders who had developed an app and um, you basically follow one of them on her kind of journey to discover kind of why certain kind of weird things are happening around her. And, you know, like the first decision you have to make is you see the third co-founder who was ousted at the inception of the company <laughs> and you have to choose to kind of like wave or ignore him. And, <laughs> you know, like depending on what you do, he either kind of like waves back or like pours his drink on the floor in disgust. So, you know, it's just, it's cool. And not every company can go out and do that. Like, cause the budgets, you know, budgets are considerations. And, I, and I'm not by all means suggesting like you have to put on this kind of multi-million dollar production you know to do great brand marketing but it's just about kind of thinking outside of the box right like yes you can put out a white paper or a case study and there's a place for that but is there something else you can do to you know can you occupy a space none of your other competitors are occupying twitch for example you know i wrote about twitch in my, my newsletter a few weeks ago no B2B brands apart from Mongo, funnily enough, um, that I've seen are actually on Twitch. And why not, right? It may not, you know, the lines between the modern day's B2B buyers' lives, personal and professional lives, are blurring. You know, they're working more than they've ever worked. They're time poor. One second they may be on their computer 
looking at a tech spec, the next they may be jumping onto a League of Legends live stream. <laughs> How would you go about creating content on Twitch for, say, Delta Tray then? Well, funny, funny you should say, because maybe we are the second company that have done it um, <laughs> on Twitch. And that was not a tee up. You, uh, you didn't know that we were doing anything. I Twitch. didn't. I, uh, yeah, for the benefit of the tape, I had no idea. <laughs> we, you know, I think uh, it's important to know kind of who you're going after when you kind of look at a new platform like Twitch or Clubhouse or something like that. When it comes to Twitch, you know, what we've done at Delta Tray, we have an innovation lab. We're fortunate to have an innovation lab within the organization who are focused on identifying the trends that are going to occur in the next five, 10 years in the sport media entertainment space and finding a way for us to take those insights and incorporate them into our products or deliver value based on them to, to our clients. And they have run a bunch of workshops on Twitch kind of deep dive, 90 minute, two hour long workshops, really getting under the hood of specific kind of technical innovations that they're exploring. So like Kubernetes, for example, or AI machine learning. And we'll invite a guest on who is an expert in that area. And we'll basically run a 90 minute, two hour masterclass targeted at uh, primarily the developer community. And look, you know, that in of itself may not deliver this quarter a revenue metric in the sense of we may not be able to measure, look, we hosted this 90-minute Twitch stream and that resulted in this lead coming through. But none of our competitors are doing it. And, you know, we're getting good numbers in terms of who's actually tuning in to watch them. It's giving us content that can be reused and repurposed across the rest of our channels. And it's talking to a subset of our potential target market who may not be ready to buy today, but may be ready to buy in a year's time. It's difficult, you know, in some companies, it's a difficult conversation to have with a leadership team that, you know, what we're doing on the marketing front may not necessarily yield a result straight away. But, you know, that's a conversation worth having because um, brand building is all about creating future demand for your product. So that's how we kind of approach it. It sounds like you're very fortunate in that you work for an organization that kind of gets it. You've already got this innovation lab, but were you prepared to make a case for that kind of activity in case you did come up against any friction? Yeah. You know, as marketers, it's our responsibility to sell. I think I've, I view it as our responsibility to sell the benefit of brand building to our leadership teams. And it's tough, right? Like, you know, if you're approaching someone who's in a position of assigning you budget, like a CFO or a finance director or a CEO or whatever, and you've got two parties going to them, one on the sales activation demand generation side and one on the brand building side. And the first group saying, you give me, you know, a hundred grand and I'm going to deliver you 10,000 leads this quarter. And the other one saying, you give me a hundred grand and I'm going to set up some Twitch streams and I'm not quite sure like what that's ultimately going to yield this quarter. You can kind of see from a leadership position where that money should go, right? It's, you know, and that's fair. As, as B2B marketers who are interested in investing in brand building, you know, we do need to make that case. And some of the things that you can use to build that case, you know, long-term sales in industries like Delta Tray, who, you know, have very small windows in which to, sell something because we're talking about big enterprise solutions. You know, once you're kind of locked in, you're locked in as a customer for a while, you need to be building a brand that will encourage those customers come to you when they're ready to buy rather than you constantly having to spend to go to them. You know, pricing power, premium brands can afford to charge premium prices. 
talent acquisition. You know, employees want to work for brands that are known, I would say, and are seen to be making some sort of difference in the world and in their industries. Category optionality. So, you know, if you have a product that becomes commoditized and you start to lose your competitiveness, if you have a premium brand that's recognized, you're in a better position to pivot and start offering a kind of adjacent solution or even something completely new that if you were perhaps unknown would be trickier to kind of pivot to. And also exit strength, you know, like CEOs, most of them have got a plan as to like what their exit plan is. And I don't necessarily have any kind of numerical evidence to back this up, but to me, it seems logical that if you have a well-known, well-respected brand, that is going to charge a a kind of a premium exit price than Mm. a brand that's relatively unknown. It feels Um, like a no-brainer. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, those are all kind of things that as marketers, we can be taking to our leadership teams and saying, look, these are the benefits that brand building will provide. And, you know, here are some examples of companies in our space or other spaces that have done this and clearly are reaping the rewards. You know, that's where I'd start. And, And also, you know, finding those kind of internal champions within your organization who do believe. So, you know, start with HR, right? Like find out what HR's targets are for that year. We want to hire 20% more engineers than we, we hired last year. Okay, great. Well, as marketing, let's think of some brand building activities that will help HR achieve that objective. Let's get on Twitch. Let's start creating highly technical developer-led content that will appeal to that market and will help HR increase the percentage of engineers we can hire this year. And then once you've got that, you could then have a stronger case to go into your leadership team and say, look, we did this small campaign. We got a result. Imagine what will happen if you give us the budget and the support we need to really go for this. So yeah, you know, finding your internal champion starting small is also another way to go about it. I'm so glad you didn't just say find a company that gets it. You know, that seems like a really practical approach to doing it. And I think playing to a CEO's exit strategy is probably the one that'll hit them in the gut the most. So <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I realize just stepping up a high level at the moment, I realize we actually haven't talked about what Delta Trade does. Could you give us the, the quick TLDR about, yeah, what problems you solve and what you do there specifically? Delta Trade is a company that I would consider probably the world's best kept secret because it has been around for 35 years and it has facilitated some of the most watched events in human history. Delta Trey operates on what I call the feel to fan spectrum in the sense of anything to do with the kind of creation, consumption, distribution of, of video content, professional video content, Delta Trey will have a hand in it. So we're putting cameras into stadiums directly on the field. We're doing broadcast graphics. We're building websites, OTT streaming services, apps, strategic consultancy, Really, you know, we are an end-to-end full-service provider to the technology provider, to the sport, media, and entertainment worlds. Some of our customers include the likes of MLB, UEFA, NFL, uh, BritBox here in the UK, and many, many others. So yeah, you won't have heard about us necessarily as a consumer, but if you unplug Delta Trade tomorrow, I think it's fair to say that a lot of much loved entertainment and sport video products would would cease to to cease to work. And my role specifically in Delta Trade, I'm the senior director of marketing and communications. 
really, you know, anything to do with the kind of promotion of our products and services falls into my bag alongside my great team. So I've got a content marketing manager, PR manager, a product marketing manager, a campaign manager, and a designer all reporting into me. And together, you know, we we spread the message of this incredible company's, you know, large value proposition across the world. And uh, I feel do a pretty good job at it too. Yeah, it certainly looks like you do. And I remember the first time you told me about what Delta Trade does, I thought it was incredibly cool. And the novelty doesn't wear off after an elevator pitch like that. It's interesting you you call it one of the world's best kept secrets. I think I'm paraphrasing there, but I, I notice you've also been responsible for figuring out Delta Trade's position in the market. How have you gone about doing this for a product slash service that does so much while making sure you're positioning the company in a unique way? Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, you know, Delta Trade is made up of kind of multiple kind of components and, you know, no customer, I would say, takes it all, right? Because it is such a vast uh, array of product services and solutions that we sell. So really, we have to kind of look at it, uh, look at each of the products and services in isolation in that, you know, here is our kind of graphics service that we sell to X buyer persona. Here is our OTT service that we sell to this buyer persona. And hey, that OTT service can actually be split in three or four different ways, depending on the requirements of the end customer. And uh, yeah, you know, tackling them in isolation. Now, the beautiful thing about Delta Tray is that, you know, because we offer pretty much everything um, in terms of video um, consumption, delivery and creation, we're in a position to scale with our customers, depending on what their exact requirements are. So you may come in and say, look, I need a new website. I'm a team, I'm a football team. I need a new website. Great, as Delta Trade, we can do that. You do that a year later, the team comes back and says, great, great success with the website. We now wanna include a video streaming component to the website, right? We wanna be able to capture a bunch of behind the scenes footage on what's happening with our players in the locker room or on the field or whatever. And we wanna be the sole destination of that kind of content, which we wanna stream directly via an app or our website or whatever. As Delta Trade, we can say, fine, like let me introduce you to our video experiences unit and we can work together to build that into your existing digital ecosystem. So as marketers for us, what's important is, you know, we gotta find those stories we got to sell the, the products and services in isolation, but also find those stories where they're coming together on specific client deployments and tell those, which is really exciting. So yeah, it's uh, keeps us on our toes for sure. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. And it does sound like you're having a lot of fun. And I can kind of see that in the, the content that you create for your newsletter. And it would be terrible of me not to touch upon the story behind that. What made you want to create the B2B Byte, the newsletter, as well as the, your podcast, B2B Better? What is the story behind it? The story behind it is that the podcast came first and that came last August. And the newsletter came in November, I think, just before Christmas. and. For me, I think last year was pretty rough, I think, as it was for everybody. <laughs> with with lockdown and, you know, these kind of feelings of isolation, I found myself at the beginning of last year in need of kind of community. And I started getting more active and involved on Twitter. 
and I've met a lot of great people subsequently on there that I would consider friends now, not just people I know online, even though we may be thousands of miles away from each other. And I found that actually there was this huge group of people who were just interested in talking about marketing communications. And I think when you work in house, that kind of thing is like, you know, water for someone who who's been thirsty for a little while, because, you know, you obviously have, I'm fortunate to have a team around me and we're always kind of talking about ideas and trying to experiment with new things, but we don't necessarily have that external influence that you would probably have from an agency where you're working with a bunch of different clients across a bunch of different things and you're experiencing a bunch of different things that can kind of feed and contribute to, to all the other parts of the puzzle, you know, in-house, it can become a little bit echo chambery if, if you don't do something about it. So I started engaging with this marketing community on, on Twitter just to try and broaden my horizons. And the podcast came about because I said, look, I want to continue to educate myself, but I don't want to go back to school. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to interview people that, that I admire and I respect, and I think are doing a killer job in their, in their respective patch of, of marketing ecosystem, of the marketing ecosystem. And effectively it's like me being able to put together my own curriculum with the professors of my choosing, you know, I can reach out to anybody and say, look, can I grab you for 35, 40 minutes? Let's just talk about what it is you do. And let me ask you some questions. I would ask a ask a teacher and Hey, let's publish it out there and share with the world this great knowledge you've, you've accumulated. So that was really how it came about. And then the, the newsletter is more about kind of me sharing, you know, my thoughts and experience on B2B marketing in general, because, uh, if I don't write it down, I'll forget it. Basically. <laughs> and if you're writing it down, you may as well share it. Hey, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. That's awesome. Do you have any grand plans for what it might become? Or are you just kind of happy using it as a platform to connect and share at the moment? For me, there's no real major agenda behind it other than I just really enjoy kind of sharing my insights with, with the marketing community in general and, and learning from the marketing community. I've been blown away by the kind of support that I've gotten from people, both in terms of them just agreeing to appear on the podcast or reading the newsletter, you know, like I'll receive an email, you know, every week or so from someone saying, wow, you know, this is really insightful. Thank you. And that just is such a nice feeling. So there's no real kind of grand plans to it other than I just want to continue sharing my experience and, and learning from others, but obviously very happy with the byproduct of being invited onto great podcasts like this. Absolutely. I mean, when I, it's, it's one of the things I look forward to on a Monday morning now, you talking about, I think the one this week was around lead generation and why, you know, it's, it's not the be all end all. And I think it plays to a belief that a lot of marketers have right now, going back to all the branding stuff. So I can see why it's uh, striking a chord. Absolutely. And, you know, as I say, sometimes I'll, I'll write this kind of stuff and I'll publish it and, it's just literally what I'm thinking that week or at that particular time. And I'll publish it and I'll be like, this is people aren't going to like this, or I'm going to be exposed for the, you know, fraud I am that studied acting and suddenly, you know, found himself in a senior marketing position. But, you know, as you say, it does seem to resonate with people. And I try not to be too contrarian because I feel like, you know, this job is hard enough. We're all, you know, figuring it out as, as we go to some degree. And, all I want to do is just share my opinion and engage with people, um, whether they agree with it or not. That's my main objective. Yeah, we all fell ass backwards into marketing one way or another. I feel like that is a common phrase that's come up with my 
podcast conversation so far. So I understand where the imposter syndrome comes from. You mentioned Twitter being a source of, I guess, network, for lack of a better word. And I know you're quite active on hashtag marketing Twitter, uh, which has kind of become its own entire network within Twitter of its own. Have you experienced any unexpected connections by getting involved? Yeah, as I said, I mean, there are some people I've met on Twitter that I would go as far to say and whether they'd say it about me is to be seen. But, you know, are, are friends of mine. And a bunch of them are based, as I said, 3,000 miles away over in the States. So, yeah, I've definitely experienced a feeling of kind of connection and community on Twitter. I was big on Twitter maybe about five years ago, stopped, only got back onto it during, during the pandemic because I needed something to do. And as I say, I've just been, I would credit Twitter with giving me the, the kind of courage to start the podcast and the newsletter. And so, yeah, I've definitely experienced a huge sense of connection. I would say that on the marketing Twitter side of things, like hashtag marketing Twitter, I, I think it's great that there is a platform where marketers from around the world and from different backgrounds and experiences can engage with one another. And it's one of the, the huge benefits of the digital world we live in. I don't know. I think in the last couple of months, it, it marketing, hashtag marketing Twitter has <laughs> There's, you know, to some, to, in some small subsets of it has started to get a little bit kind of clicky or a little bit kind of, you know, we should only talk about marketing and we're only tweeting to kind of get engagement and, and things like that. I think I saw someone tweeted a screenshot yesterday about how someone unfollowed them, calling them a fraud because they talk about cooking or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And it's just, it's just wild, right? Because I mean, at the end of the day, as I, as I said, we're, we're all just kind of trying to get along with our lives and, you know, have fun. Because, I mean, if social media is not fun, like, you, you shouldn't be doing it. So I would just encourage anyone, you know, for anyone listening to this, if you are engaging with marketing Twitter or you perhaps are going to start engaging with marketing Twitter, just, you know, it's absolutely fine to be yourself. You don't have to talk about marketing all the time. I tweet, like, 60% of the time about how my toddler keeps me on my toes isn't that um, one of your most popular tweets as well something to do with uh yeah 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 like <laughs> my daughter is like you might hear in the background she's like the greatest source of my inspiration for twitter <laughs> 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 and um and that's great and like i love what, I, what i've loved about you know meeting people on twitter is not just kind of learning from them from a marketing point of view but learning who they are as people and building like real personal connections. It's the first time I think in my entire life on social media I've ever experienced that. So yeah, if you're involved in marketing Twitter, you know, just have fun with it, right? Show us who you really are because there is a community of people out there from my experience that are, are ready to embrace you. Mate, I think that's a beautiful note to end on. Um, thanks so much for joining me. Where can people learn more about you and what you're up to? So I am on Twitter, as I've you may have got. <laughs> um, <laughs> got an inkling. Yeah, exactly. So you can follow me on Twitter at Jason R. Bradwell. There is a link to the B2B Byte, my newsletter on my Twitter profile. And you can also find my podcast there as well. Also, I'm on LinkedIn, just Jason Bradwell. And, you know, anytime anyone wants to chat about marketing or raising kids or really anything at all, my, my DMs are always open. Fantastic. Jason, thank you so much. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate you. Thanks for listening. 
Before you dash, just a quick note to share a free ebook we just published called the Content Operations Playbook. If you're interested in content marketing and SEO, then this ebook is for you. We lift the hood up on our own editorial and content production processes from hiring writers, creating solid content briefs, polishing content to be the best it can be, and of course, distributing it to actually generate traffic. It's totally free and you can download it over at grizzle.io forward slash content ops. That's www.grizzle.io forward slash content ops. And hey, if you enjoy this podcast, feel free to subscribe. We've got a lot of great conversations lined up with experts in the world of business, marketing, and entrepreneurship coming up. Thanks again.